I invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, where we encounter one of the two passages that share with us the model prayer of our Lord Jesus. And um, so we're back in our study in the Lord's Prayer. In our previous studies, um, we took a break last week with our Passover demonstration. But in the previous studies, we've seen the setting and the context of which Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer. And uh, we looked at that prayer, and that shows us what prayer is and what prayer is not. Um, We can go back and visit those if you'd like to catch. I tend to repeat myself a lot, so I need to not do that. Uh, So the last time we were together, we looked at the introductory words of the invocation of the Lord's Prayer. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every word counts, the verbal, but especially when it comes where that is so important when we look at the very words of the Lord's Prayer. There is not a wasted word among them. They are all important. None are just filler words to make the prayer sound pretty. Um, They are all important. And so this week we're going to look at the first petition. And before I'd mentioned this, that uh, the Lord's Prayer is divided up Uh, similarly to the Ten Commandments, that the first ones refer to God and our relationship to Him, and then the latter ones, the last three, about our relationships one with another. And so the first petition is about God and His glory. And so um, let's look at that in the text, and we'll pray, and we'll begin. Matthew chapter 6, Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen of others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you have need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And then what I'd like to do is put the slide on the screen of the Lord's Prayer, or we'll quote together what we see as that classic of the Lord's Prayer. Let's say this aloud together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your spirit who will now use his word and we expect him to work. And Lord, so would you grow us, change us, change me through your word. Pray this would be an encouragement to those that hear it and that you would feed your people with it. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I did want to uh, mention and then share, had someone asked me, we used um, the, um, Bart, if you could put the slide up with the uh, Baptist Catechism question and response there. Um, 
so a couple weeks ago we did this. I used, we used the Westminster Catechism questions, and um, I had someone ask me about that, that, um, that means like Presbyterian or whatever. Well, the, the, the Westminster Confession the, and, and the catechism that came from it was later on in uh, the, um, 1677 when the English Baptist adapted it for, as the Baptist Catechism, and then in 1689 it became part of the, what's called the London Baptist Confession. When that came over to America, the London Baptist Association, or the Philadelphia Baptist Association, that triennial conference in 1742, which is a long time ago, by the way, um, uh, had included that in the Baptist Catechism that Benjamin Keach, uh, they often called it Keach's Catechism, um, was there. And so it's, been not, not, it's 90, 98 and 99 in the Westminster, I think it's 109 and 110, in the Baptist Catechism. So it says this, what is prayer? And the answer is that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So offering up of our desires, our desires, our askings uh, to God. And the next question is, what rule hath God given us for the direction of our prayer? I love this answer. The whole word of God is of use and directs us in prayer. So the whole Bible teaches us how to pray. But the special rule or bar or guide or the measuring, the rule uh, of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And so we have in the Lord's Prayer that Christians have seen for a long time the kind of measuring stick Uh, for us to learn how to pray. And so we've said, kind of our big idea of this whole series is that the Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray and what to pray. It teaches us what prayer is, and then the context teaches us what prayer is not. So prayer isn't, you know, where we get to do self-expression or an art form or manipulating God, impressing God or impressing others. It's not a negotiation room either. It's not... um, you know, where we kind of lay it out. It's not a filibuster. You know, if we talk long enough, God will give in and give what we want. Um, it is the offering up of our desires to him. And so it's communion with our, of our soul with God. And the fact that it's here, the, because of our fallen condition, the fact that it's here, then the context is there that we need to be taught how to pray. We need that, just like the disciples is. We don't come to it. Um, thing. So uh, this is really the state of who our, our being we um, need to be taught how to pray, and we're supposed to be praying. Jesus starts off not with a, if you pray, he says, when you pray, pray this way. So we are to be doing it, it's an obedience thing. And then he, so then it teaches us, we think about prayer, we start off with thinking who we're talking to, our Father. So right from the get-go, it confronts our individualism, that we often come, me, me, my, 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 our, whatever, but to go with our, bringing that um, community aspect of us that, that we're part, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on when we get to the idea of communion. Our Father, and so it starts off with this idea of the gospel, these gospel terms, that the fatherhood of God through our adoption and his faithfulness and his care for us, this, the fatherhood of God, and we talked a little bit about, and we actually went a lot about uh, fatherhood, is he father of all, and he's, father, he's fatherly to all, but he is father particularly only to 
those that are saved. So our Father, and so if that teaches us about our relationship with God, then the who is in heaven teaches us about God's transcendence and his eminence, that he is transcendent, that he is sovereign over everything. When we, I mean, if someone heard your prayers, if somehow someone could take the transcript or overhear your private prayers, what would they learn about God? And if, when we pray this type of way, could, could, could someone think you're talking to some tribal deity or to some local idea or someone who's just bound a limited God? No, he, this shows us that he is the God in heaven. And the, the Old Testament is over and over repeats this idea of God in heaven talking about his power, that he is outside of time. He is not bound by time, space, or matter. A tribal deities are those of spirits or what non-existent ones that exercise in those realms. He is outside of all of that, and we need to remember that when we pray. And so this idea is that we would balance the idea of the imminence of God or the intimacy we have with God in a personal relationship with our Father, but also remembering He's the God of the universe. He is our Father who is in heaven. And so we mention, So we close that by saying we need to remember who God is when we pray and remember who we are, that we're coming as children that are now, um, we're his children. So if you're saved in the gospel, you don't have to be scared of coming to God and bringing your requests. And we said how uh, that tweet from uh, Tim Keller that the only one who feels the boldness uh, to walk, go into the king's bedroom at 3 a.m. to ask for a cup of water as a child. And we have that kind of access. That you can come boldly before the throne of grace because he's your father. So we remember who he, he is, who we are. But then we mention this, and this is where we're going to bridge on today, is that we remember when we pray what the goal of life is when we pray. What our big end? What's the end game? I, I tend to be a big picture person, and, and so like you start a new board game and someone's giving you all the details. What's the goal? What's the big game? You know, to get five points, to run out of cards, to say uno, whatever it is, you know, to have all the money, um, um, Monopoly or something like that. What, what is that? And this next phrase, hallowed be your name, gives us that and reminds us of that. And so, um, so I want to make some observations, so interpret that a little bit, make some application in the time we have here. So there are two, there, I mentioned before, there are no unwasted words when we come to this. And so hallowed be your name. The two key words are hallowed and name. So that's what we're going to park at for a little bit here. So to hallow means to make holy or to sanctify, to revere. Um, the word hallow is kind of an old term. And um, you can see that in the conservative modern translations that they've updated. So, so you know, as you all, as we re- re- quoted earlier, uh, and maybe and probably the way you've heard it growing up or quoted when people do it is the, the, um, uh, from, the from the King James, uh, Our Father who art in heaven. Um, and, and we don't really use that art anymore, right? Um, you know, usually when you call uh, or text, um, you know, uh, use 
you know, say, you know, say, hey, where are you at? You know, you call, get someone on the phone. I'm, I'm at Kohl's or I'm at Aldi, which is usually what my wife responds when I say, you know, you know, or text ETA question mark. Or if you're in CB world, you know, on the radio, 1020. What's your 20? You know, um, where, where, where are you? Who art? And so we don't use to say, you know, we're, you know, I, I'm sure that when, um, you know, Mr. Cross is out having breakfast or whatever, and Mrs. Cross calls, she doesn't say, where art thou? You know, she doesn't usually call and say that way. So there's been some updates to a lot of the word, you know, who art in heaven. And it was, you see in the modern translations that the art is who is, um, you know, how thy name is usually your name. You know, we don't, these and thou's, we don't often use those. But if you'll note Many of the conservative translations still use the word hallowed. Um, and there's a couple of them that I, I that, that, like, so the Christian Standard version, version says to make, to um, honor, may it name, name be honored as holy. Uh, there's one of the other more paraphrased, be to kept holy. Uh, but the rest of them, like the NASB, the New, New, New American, the New American Standard, the New King James, the ESV, even the NIV, keep the word hallowed. Why is that? Why is that there is, and the answer is that there's not a modern word for it. Uh, in fact, Al Mohler points out that this actually tells us much about the secularization of our society, that our language hasn't had a, we have modern words that are synonyms for almost all the middle middle English words, but we don't have one for that, and so we're still saying "Hallowed be Thy name." So holiness, the hallowedness of God, is out of style. It is something. So so R.C. Sproul, and if you've not read Sproul's book, "The Holiness of God," you need to. Um, it, it, that that the whole holy things are are both scary and attractive to people. You know, they, people are, you see this from, especially horror films. You know, there's certain holy things that you get a holy this or holy do this with the vampire and this is particular. So there's scary things, the sanctum or uh, things like this. But it's, so it's scary, but it's also weirdly attractive. And, and so there, it kind of keeps people away from the holy. That's why sometimes people will be scared to walk into a church building. Uh, they'll say, oh, if I go in like the, the roof's going to fall on me. And here that might happen, but not because it's holy. But, but you know, so just be ready, right? You know, um, um, you know uh, I don't know if that says anything about our rapture position that most people are worried about going up. We're worried about it coming down. And uh, anyway, I'm joking. But we actually, that's actually one of the things the men are working on is getting some ideas about that. Anyway, but I mentioned that that points out something about our secularization of our society. Now, when we say hallowed, so hallowed, you know, sleepy hollow or Halloween hallows the saints or the basically to sanctify, hallowed be thy name or sanctify or revere or make holy. So when we're to make holy your name, praying the first petition. So the first petition of the prayer is is about God and it's about his holiness is the first thing that's prayed. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be your name. Now, the one thing to note is that we don't, 
add anything to any of God's attributes, that they are perfectly in harmony and eternal and unchanging. God's holiness is kind of the same way when we say glorify. God has so much glory. It's not like God's got this bank of glory, and every time we sing, we will glorify, he gets a little bit more. No, no, we're not adding to it. We're just recognizing. It's the difference between, um, you know, when we take a magnifying glass or uh, a, a telescope, we're not making the stars any bigger. We're just making our vision of the, our perception of the star bigger by looking in that telescope. And so when we're glorifying or this, we're wanting to make it look as big as it actually is from our perspective. And so we're not adding anything to God's glory, God's holiness. But what we're wanting to do when we pray, God's hallowed be your name is that we want to make it visible, visible, make it clear. We want more people to see it as hallowed. Hallowed be your name. So hallow, that's one key word in this phrase. The next word is name. Now one's name, this is their, their public reputation. The, the name means something and, and mean, names still mean something. How many of you have looked up the, know the meaning of your name? Know what your name means? It's a good thing. And, and sometimes they change and there's cultural things like that, but it's a good thing. Uh, how many of you knew what a name meant when you named your kid that? Okay, it wasn't just because there was some handsome uh, uh, actor that had that name and you picked that name or whatever, you know, or you, or you heard it when you were in Ireland and thought it sounded pretty or something like that, Kerrigan, right? Um, <laughs> um um, or, or, what, or whatever that might be. Names mean something, and, and especially in the Bible. That's why it's important to look at a dictionary of what someone's name means, because especially during the prophet's time, they would name, and it would actually be, the, the name would be given by God and, and, and for a message to the people. And Jesus' name was a particular one just like that. Um, sometimes, so, so the name would be given as a form of prophecy, but also it was also um, sometimes about the character of the one who had that name. Now, like some people develop a nickname that would be about their character, but some names in the Bible were about something that happened with the infant at birth. Um, Jacob is a great example. Heel, heel snatcher. He was grabbing Esau's heel as they came out. Um, and so he was kind of known. He was the supplanter. And that was indicative of his life. If he, was, he was taking and trying to take what was the, Esau's birthright. And so that, but he was named that because of the characteristics shown at birth. We see this in society. Um, there's a story in, the, in, in Native American language, uh, language that they would, there was a, a, a brave that came up to his dad and asked him, dad's like, why do people have their names? And he says, well, when, um, you know, when she, when, when a baby's born, the, uh, father comes out of the teepee and looks in the woods. And the first thing he sees, he names the, um, the child that, and so that's why your brother's name is Soaring Eagle. And that's why your sister's name is Running Deer. Why do you ask this, puking dog? <laughs> Names mean something. That's a joke. Um, God revealed, and this is not a joke, God reveals his character through his name. 
Uh, I, I want to put a list of verses on the screen and, and look at them the, about how God shows his name. The first one is in um, Psalm 20, verse 1. It talks about how the name of the God of Jacob will give us security and defense. Um, a song of David, may the Lord answer you in day trial. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name of God protect you. And then the next one is Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So in God's name, there is safety for the righteous. So so you need to memorize some of the names of God. And when you are going in trouble, that you, the name of God would be a, a form of God ministering safety to you. So like when you're struggling and God is, and, and finances aren't there or the provisions aren't there, and you're like, Jehovah Jireh, my God will provide. He is the God who provides. And those names of God are so important. The next one is in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The name refers more than just the word Jesus, but the name means believing in that person. Next verse in John 14 and verse 13. And whatsoever you ask in my Name. It's just not the tagline you put on with a hashtag at the end of your prayer. This will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, we petition God in Jesus' name. This means that we're praying, that we're aligning it with Jesus' prayers, and that we're coming. It's not a special password we have to get into God. You know, you have to put the thumbprint on your phone before you can look at that app. You don't have to do that. No, it's not that. It means that we're claiming we're coming because of who we are in Christ and that we're praying according to his name. God's name is very important. In fact, he even... um, uses it as the basis of his public reputation when he would say that he has put his word above his name. Not that it's more important, but it's on the foundation of his name, his word. So that's one of the reasons why we would believe that the Bible is infallible and without error is because the God who is perfect and without error and perfect in all of his attributes, he has placed his word upon his name and it is his word. And so it is carries the characteristics of our God. And so God reveals his character through his name. It's that public, and even says of us that a good name is something that we should, we should desire for. We don't live for reputation, but Proverbs reminds us that uh, a, good, a good name is, is important. And so this is even something that God longed for. Um, Moses, um, who has lots of issues, is, you know, God's calling him to go back to Egypt. And he asked at the bush, who should I say is sending me? And whose name? What's your name? What name should I give him? And God says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. In fact, God even says, when, when Pharaoh sees my power, he's going to know my name. And so we owe it to the character of God to the holiness of God, to the public reputation of God, to be very careful in how we use his name. I want to, there's some applications about this. 
Um, in fact, this, the, the explicit one is in the third commandment, that we are not to take or to use the name of God in vain. And so, um, so we are to pray, and he starts out with this prayer, this petition, hallowed be your name. So make holy, make visibly holy, make it more real, the holiness real to everyone, to myself, the name, the power, the public reputation of God. So that's what we're looking at in this phrase. And now here's the application. So to us first, Jesus' first request is not about personal, personal needs. His first request is not about um, a shopping list of things that he wants. His first request is about God and his glory. I want to read a, a quote from James Boyce in a, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, he says, Unfortunately, we often pray first for things, for things. We often pray first for things. Things that would, might take us from God. Things often do that, right? New car, new this, things that would make us, or for friends. That things that might compete with our friendship with God. Or for the ordering of events which are things that are plans and not God's. We'll often pray, Lord, help us to have a good day. Help us to have safety as we drive. Help us to, this to work. Help me to pass the test I didn't study for. Help me to lose the weight after I ate a big dessert. Help me to, you know, you know we'll pray, you know, it's all, help this to go well, help the money to come in, help to this. And not that God doesn't want us to hear our desires, but the first thing we pray for Ought not be that. We often, he said, instead, this is Boyce, we must learn to begin our prayers with thoughts of God's honor and the advancement of his purposes in history. Because we tend, and I don't know about you, but this is how I pray, and it's, it's a shame that I tend to start praying with my shopping list. And sometimes I literally have a list, and I think I'm good because I have a list of what I'm going to pray for. But, the, but these requests often the, the, are the opposite of how Jesus starts this prayer. So when we go in secret to talk to God alone, um, I, wa- I want to start off praying about my relationship with the Father and His glory in the world and how He's going to be honored. And so there may be many of us in this room today that need to say, you know, God, forgive me for trying to make my name great and my plans great. My kingdom great instead of yours. And God loves to forgive us. And he started our father. He loves to forgive us. He wants us to be in that relationship there. Um, so our biggest concern should not be what makes our lives comfortable. But for what makes God be glorified the most. Um, so. Hallowed be your name. I want to start with my heart. And an application in your heart. Hallowed be your name in my heart and your heart. And what I want to pray for with those longings, those desires. And if there's a tension there, then we would say, God, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, my heart wants my stuff rather than you to be hallowed, you to be glorified. 
And the next, next area of application, hallowed be your name, in my speech, in the way I talk. I mean, the, the, the direct application is to not take the Lord's name in vain. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's so common to use that as a, to use the name of Christ, the name of God as a comma um, or as a curse word and just saying it all the time, you know. I mean, we ought to start it. Why do we, I mean, even atheists or agnostics would say, you know, they get mad when they hit their thumb and it's like, you know, or something really bad happens. Someone cuts them off. They're almost in a car wreck. It's always, oh my God. Let's start a trend of using somebody else's name in vain. And I'm going to suggest Hillary Clinton. So the next time you hit your thumb, just say, oh, my Hillary. You know, and, and, the, and that'll be great. And maybe that'll catch on and it'll be, start trending. But, um, I'm joking, but at the same time, the, 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 it, there is a point there, though, of why God's name? And I think it's because deep down intrinsically there's a blasphemy and a hatred there, but uh, be careful of that. Now, I don't want to be legalistic in this, but um, sometimes we're like, well, I'll not obey. The, the, the um, Pharisees and some of the Jews, they would be, you know, last week he had the phylactery, and that was basically an overly literal and we should take the Bible literal. And what I mean by literal is as natural as it's given. So when, when God speaks in poetry, interpret it as poetry, right? So, so when God said, you know, bind the scriptures on your forehead and on your heart and on the doorpost of your house or things like that, he wasn't meaning to literally tear a piece off and put it in a box and wear it on your ball cap. He was meaning to like keep it at the forefront of your mind, keep it on your brain, the top of your head. We use that phrase. You know, it's like if that's what you see when you walk in the door, that's, that's there. And the same way we can be, uh, the, the Jews also did something to where they wanted to be so careful not to break the third commandment, to not take God's name in vain, that they would literally, even in some manuscripts and stuff, they would like not use it or will only use certain letters of it or they would just say the name because we want to be careful not to say it. Um, in vain. Now, I appreciate the honor and the heart to not want to do that, but we can be do a re- with every form of legalism. There's also a reverse form of legalism, you know. So there's the people that are like, I'm not going to get, I, you know, here's the here's the rule. I'm going to stay as far away from that as as possible. I, I'm not. We're not even going to touch that thing, you know. I mean, you know, God says, you know. Uh, dress modest, so I'm going to go over here and wear my burqa uh, and make sure my skirt goes past my ankles. And, you know, but then there's the other people that if this is the rule, that their form of legalism is, well, I'm not going over it, right? You know, I didn't do that specific thing. And that's it's a, just as legalistic. You know, so they'll use everything else but the name. Right? Well, I didn't say, and, and a, I don't want to be legalistic, but be careful with euphemisms for God that would be in place of. And you can read into those. And I'm not going to say if I ever hear you say, gee whiz, or gosh, that you're in sin. And I'm just saying be careful with some of that stuff. Um, and, um, um, but we want to be careful in our speech to honor God's name. Uh, and, of course, there's, there's flippant ways, the man upstairs, the big guy, you know, and we'll talk to Papa. And, and you hear Christian artists do this and stuff like this, and you're kind of like, 
do you realize who you're talking about? Um, I'm not saying you need to use these and thous, but a little reverence here. Uh, this is God. So uh, is he being hallowed in our hearts, in our speech? How about in our service? Um, Thomas Watson said it this way. He said, a holy life speaks louder than all the anthems and praises in the world. Through the, main, through the main work of religion lives in our heart. When your light so shines that others behold it, we glorify God. When our lives shine, his name shines in us. So when our lives shine, his name shines. So in our service, in the way we're living, do we say, well, hallowed be your name. Is my lifestyle making his name shine? And people see this. Now, it's not just in that you never mess up. Because remember, part of the way people see your lifestyle shine is in the way you repent. I mean, sometimes we have this idea of that our testimony is that we never messed up and we've got to hide all the times we messed up. But the gospel would tell us, no, actually, you can bring all the times you messed up and just put them out here. So, and it, so God honors godliness in the New Testament as those that are repenting of sin and those that are resisting sin. And so we make his name glorious in how we're repenting of sin and how, we're, how we are resisting sin. And so the way your lifestyle might shine to your coworkers this week might be by you coming and apologizing. Hey, I didn't fill out this right. I fudged that number. I exaggerated this. I was rude to you when I did that. That might be the way that, you're, that you make his name famous. It might be by not doing those things and being above board on some things or whatnot. When our lives shine, his name shines through us. Um, Al Mohler said it this way. He said, the degree to which which God's glory is manifest on earth depends on how we conduct ourselves as redeemed image bearers. So we're going to make his name hallowed by the way we carry our lives as image bearers. We're going to shine that as we're bearing the name. We're going out and let your light, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And uh, so don't hide it under a bushel this week, okay? Um, A second application is how we would apply this evangelistically. Intrinsic in this idea of a desire and a petition to say, God, let your name be hallowed, is a desire for other people everywhere to know and worship this. This is part of, in the Psalms, we see this desire for other people to worship God. And part of our, our thrust in evangelism is for God's name to be hallowed. And so people that are wanting God's name to be hallowed are going to be a people with a passion for evangelism and to get the news out and and is for evangelism particularly but also wanting God's name to be hallowed in all peoples whether they know him or not and this is part of the the reason why Christians are in in our salt and light of showing this would be even to want to um uh, not force or bind but to influence and guide uh society towards these things uh, whether that be laws or preventative things of like the birth of um, 
preborn children or uh, elderly uh, that that we would want to support things like that because we want God's name to be hallowed because those are image bearers of the holy name of God. We want to influence on certain things. Um, in part, that's part of our uh, heart of hallowing God's name. And then the last area I want to apply this to, and as we transition to the Lord's table, is congregationally that the church as a congregation, as the visible expression of the body of Christ in particular churches will want God's name to be hallowed. Now, I use a couple phrases there that are important for us to unpack. The, the visible church. So there's the invisible church. Everyone who believes on Christ is put into the invisible church, the body of Christ, the Catholic in the sense of universal church. But the, visi- the, the, the church as a whole, the universal church, has a visible component in every age. And that's the church you can see. And that is the people that are here and now. And the visible church is seen in particular churches. And you say, well, are you sure about that? Can't that just be at a concert or a Facebook page or an online website? No, because the scriptures gives doors and gates of that door that are th- of that visible church, things like baptism, church discipline, and the Lord's table. And so the, um, what touches the visible church is this thing that we use in modern terms called church membership. And so what touches membership touches the visible church. And so when we're lax in that, it undermines the gospel and the hallowing of God's name. I'll give a great example because we were talking about the Lord. We were talking about Passover last week. Uh, if you want to go over with me to First Corinthians five, First Corinthians five. This is where this was our scripture reading last week. And in the and and the context is so important. So when it says, "For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed." It's great. Christ, our, that's, that's the explicit statement in the New Testament that Christ is our Passover lamb. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Great demonstration. Learned about Passover. Still not sure what the egg's for, but that's cool, right? Zoom out. The context is, verse 1, chapter 5, it's reported that there's sexual immorality among you, the kind that's not even tolerated by the pagans. There is sexual sin in the church that even the Romans don't think is kind of weird and out there. And you're kind of boasting in grace that you're still having this person in the church. And so he gives the illustration there. For your boasting, verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little laven lavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old laven that you may that that you may be a new lump. Now, what's he talking about? During Passover, the Jews would purge laven. They'd only use unleavened bread in Passover. They'd purge laven from the kitchen, the house there. Do that because Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old laven, the laven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then they go on how you should take this man, 
and you should put him outside of the church. So if there's inside and outside, then there's a process of in and out, and there's a marking off of the visible body. And we often call that membership or commitment or something like that, covenant or whatnot. And so for God's glory, this is to be done so that Jesus' name as the Passover lamb would not be defamed and also for the health of the church. And so the visible church identifies insiders and outsiders. The visible church, part of the process of what the church does is make that identity. And, and it is very common in Western society, in particular in our Appalachia, West Virginia. I mean, we're like, you know, um, mountaineers are always free. That, and, and I've had people talk, tell me this, and you've had people tell this. You know, where our family goes to church, and whether we're attending or not, or whether I go, or, that's kind of a private thing. I mean, that, you, you shouldn't meddle with that. I mean, that's not really any of our business to, to do that, right? And, and, and what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is kind of telling the church is, is that, yeah, it is your business. I mean, that is our business. Um, I mean, it's what we do. Um, and that's what part of hallowing God's name is that we start. I, heard, I read this a couple months ago or heard it. I don't remember which heard or read and they kind of or that that you start reaching out and revitalizing the church by cleaning up the in the church. I mean, this is what God called the church there, that we want to get down to the gospel, the basics, that we know Christ. And you know what? When, when there is a marking off of those in the body and those outside the body, there's a lot of people that get upset. And you know what? It's usually, the people that often get the maddest about things like that are not non-Christians or brand new Christians. And they're not people that are there all the time and serving God and things like that. It, but it's usually the nominal Christians that are the ones that get the most angry about that. When someone talks about, hey, we're going to have the Lord's table. You need to be identified with the body of Christ in baptism to come. We're going to fence this. Um, well, what are you doing? Isn't that legalistic? It's usually the nominals that are the most angry with that. And so God would say, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And so the church does this. The church does that marking off. Now, it doesn't do it with the, we don't have bully clubs and Deacons with, hey, let me see your heart here. No, he does it by receiving into membership through baptism and expelling through discipline. So the church identifies Christians through baptism and discipline. And those that are not participating in the visible body are either being disobedient or they're just unaware of what the Bible teaches about the nature of the church. And so then we come to the Lord's table. So just a couple pages over there in 1 Corinthians. In verse 10, in chapter 10 rather, he talks about how that the cup, in verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake in the one bread. And so this is where we'd say in baptism, one becomes part of the many. And when we have the Lord's table, the many remind us that we're part of the one, the one body, one bread, 
one baptism, one Lord. And so it's a participation. It is what the church gathers. And then when the instruction for the Lord's table comes in chapter 11, he starts with the um, first 16 verses on head coverings. And and you guys can tell me what that means later. Um, but the part of the, of the starting in verse seventeen to the end of the chapter in First Corinthians eleven about the Lord's Supper. I want you to note a first thing here about the importance of the gathered assembly, the visible church. The and, and this is it, I've had to evolve on this as, uh, as well, even in little things like a, a, a something like um, uh, hospital visits. Um, shut-in visits? Do you take communion to them or not? Um, uh, So it says here, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you've come, when you come together, note there, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as the church, I hear there's divisions among you. Verse 20, when you come together, Verse 33, when you come together. Five times here he says, when you come together, that the Lord's table is for the gathered church. It is normally and almost always participated in and practiced with the gathered assembly. When you come together. This is one of the reasons why the scripture said to not to neglect the worship gatherings of the church. In fact, that's one of the tra- ways of translating, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. One of the modern translations says the worship gatherings particularly. Um, communion is intended to be for those that are united with Christ, that are united with the body of Christ, and those that are pursuing unity in the body of Christ. As we said, you come together, don't, don't be divisions among you, one not doing this and not doing this. So those that are united with Christ, those that are united with the body of Christ, those are the pursuing unity in the body of Christ. And so celebrating communion apart from the company of the visible church violates what communion is supposed to represent. Um, so um, now I, I say, okay, well, what about that thing you mentioned earlier about like if someone's a shut-in or whatever? So one of the things I've done before uh, it, that we did at our previous church before we came here was we had some shut-ins and we had a, a group of senior saints and we had a particular week where, we're, hey, we're going to go all together to these shut-ins homes and have communion with them. And we basically had a church service all gathered together. And they weren't able to come to us, so we went to them. And, uh, and, and they really appreciated that. But, but, but communion's not a means of salvation grace. Um, so we don't walk around, you know, you know, I'm not walking up and down UHC with wafers and things. And I'm not saying someone's bad and all this stuff. I'm just saying the way I'm seeing it, the way that, people on our kind of brand have seen it for at least a few hundred years has been that this is for the gathered church and it's repeated there so anyway so um we're going to come take the lord's table now and this is one of the ways that when it says to as we take the lord's table we're to not to we're to examine ourselves not to take it unworthily so as we start talking about hallowing God's name and that a desire of our heart would be one of the ways we do that corporately is in the Lord's table 
And so, as I've mentioned before and many other times, uh, we fence this table. And what I, by that I mean we, uh, I, I wanna, we're not going to come and say row to row that you take this, you don't. I'm, it's just saying this is a voluntary action and a voluntary association. And I'm saying that this is voluntary for those that are united with Christ, those that are united with the body of Christ, and those that are pursuing unity in the body of Christ. And if you are in that category, you are welcome. Jesus invites you to come to his table. And if there's something in your life that makes you outside of that, uh, first of all, I want your first impulse not to be like, oh, I can't take communion here. No, 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 no. The first impulse ought to be, how do I become part of that body of Christ? And, and, and that you would come in salvation or, or, or come in, in, in identifying with that or, or, or something like that. And then if you're not in that, then say, hey, I recognize that and that we're just, we want to make things super friendly and welcoming, but recognize that this is a family meal for those that are part and identified in Jesus' body. If you're here and you're from maybe another church uh, or you're coming and visiting and you, or things like that, you're invited to this because it's for all of God's people that are in union with him, in union with the visible church and pursuing unity in the visible church. And so we're going to pray, and then after I pray, we're just going to remain silent as our men prepare for the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to apply this personally in our own lives, our hearts, and our speech, that you'd help us to apply it by being evangelistic as a church and as individuals and that we would apply it corporately that we would be people that take your name and what you've called us to um, in the body seriously that we would be a holy people separated, set apart, marked off for you as image bearers and shining lights that our lives would shine your name And we even do that as we remember you the way you asked to be remembered. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's keep our heads bowed, eyes closed. Let's just have some time of prayer. And um, kind of a somber time. You would examine your heart, maybe make some confession, pray. Remember what we're doing in this event.